I'm Will Baker, president of the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, and welcome to our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving Chesapeake Bay, joined by one of my oldest friends and one of my fellow old colleagues here at the Chesapeake Bay Foundation, Bill Goldsborough. Bill is, uh, what is your title now, Bill? What the hell do we call you? Well, uh, let me see if I can make up a good one. Um. (laughs) Bill's head of our fishery. Bill is a scientist and is head of all of the fisheries work CBF does over the years and across all species, from menhaden to blue crabs to oysters to shad, sturgeon, uh, the whole, the whole, uh, the whole shooting match. There you go. All okay. the critters. All People right. love critters. All right. So today... You should pay me more. You <laughs> should pay you more. <laughs> <laughs> you ought to pay us to work here. <laughs> uh, I bet our, yeah, people are having fun listening to this one. We're in a good mood today. Um, so let's talk blue crabs. Uh, you and I spoke last year. Uh, the the stock was up last year from a couple of really pretty dismal years. But we were hardly singing, um, uh, you know, singing success. So, so give us a, a, sort of a brief history of the last couple of years, and where are we today? Well, um, <clears throat> we have an a- annual survey in the winter. It's very strong, statistically strong survey. Really good snapshot of the population. So every year in the spring, those results come out, and we have another data point. Um, three years ago, it was bad news. Uh, two years ago, it was bad news. Last year, it picked up. It picked up by about a third. And, uh, and it wasn't just one part of the population. It was males, females, and juveniles picked up some each. This year, same thing. Picked um, up again. About above, the, above last year. Above last year. Yeah, about the same amount, about a third. So um, we're out of the woods. No, we're not out of the woods. <laughs> uh, the population is still below the target. Um, and even once you get to the target, you're not necessarily done. It's, a, it's an ongoing process. Uh, there is a lot of natural variability. So what you seek to happen, have happen, is for the population to uh, achieve the target, perhaps exceed it, maybe drop below a little, and then exceed it again. So vary around the target is what you're what the best you can hope for, what you're looking for. Um, so far, we haven't seen that. We've been varying between what they call the threshold, which is a minimum level. You don't want to let it go below or it's overfished, uh, and the target um, for the last uh, eight years. Since this program was put in place in 2008 by uh, Governor Malley and Governor Kane of Virginia working together, the Maryland um, Virginia governors right. worked together in their administrations to create this this threshold target population assessment of uh, numbers. Right, right. Science-based management of the crab fishery. It it gives you these scientific guidelines for management. So uh, we are varying between the threshold and the target. We want it to continue to go up, so we're varying around the target is kind of what it comes down to. Um, The variability comes from things you can't control, you know, things like climate, uh, weather, and so forth. Um, predation. What, uh, predate. Well, um, I'll get to that. You can, there are some things we can control with respect to that that are important. But winter kill is a big one. Last year, was it was a bad winter, the winter of 2015. This year, it was a mild winter. So we did not have that problem. That's a, that's a variability. So really, two winters ago were tough. And the winter before that, 
but this past winter <clears throat> was was mild. Was mild. Right? Winter of 2016 was mild, and that was that was good for the crabs. Uh, we also can have variability um, in the population as a result of offshore winds and currents in uh, late summer, early fall, when it's critical to have onshore forces pushing the larvae uh, back into the bay. Okay, we got to stop right there to make yeah. sure everybody understands. Do a quick <clears throat> review of the life cycle of a blue crab. Most of the females overwinter in the southern bay. The larvae are released near the mouth of the bay. Pick it up from there. Yeah, well, that's right. Uh, I think I think I, I would start at the mating process. Uh, I think uh, anybody who crabs is familiar with a doubler crab. Usually see them in mid to late summer, and that's um, uh, male and female crabs together, the male holding the female uh, when she's about to undergo her final molt, as they call it. You know, when a crab sheds its shell and becomes a soft crab, the females actually have what they call a terminal molt, a final one, then they don't have any more. Uh, the males can keep growing indefinitely. Uh, but in its terminal molt, uh, at, at its terminal molt, is when the mating takes place, male and female. Uh, and so the female then um, has the ability to fertilize eggs and produce larvae and, and release the larvae. But that doesn't happen until a year later. It's a very interesting process. Uh, the, the female does not fertilize the eggs right away. They move on down the bay in the fall of the year, overwintering along the way, or a lot of them make it all the way down to the lower bay near the mouth where they overwinter. Uh, and then the following summer, uh, they collect in that area, and when the temperature is right, typically midsummer, they'll, uh, they'll, they'll release the larvae uh, from their sponge. You've heard, heard people talk about sponge crabs. That's when they do fertilize the eggs and the eggs start to grow, they grow in a mass that appears underneath the female. That egg sac on the female crabs you sometimes see. Yeah, yep. yeah. So the apron, what they call the apron of the crab, sort of separates from the body a little as this mass of eggs grows out. Um, so they release the larvae in, in around midsummer, uh, and uh, and they're swept out to the ocean, out free, into the Atlantic. Free-floating free larvae. Free-floating as, as plankton. They go where the currents take them. Um, and, uh, and they spend maybe a month or so out there and then are dependent on favorable winds and currents to push them back in. And, and, uh, and the annual recruitment, the success of reproduction, the, the production of new baby crabs in the bay is, is very dependent on those favorable winds and currents. So when the larvae become, I think the proper term is a megalope, reach a stage where they actually have fins, instinct tells them to dive down and hopefully that will co coincide with the bottom currents carrying them back up into the Chesapeake. Yeah, that's right. The The net flow uh, of the low, deeper currents is typically into the bay, and the megalope is the late larval stage right before they become a, a, a something that actually looks like a crab. I just, I just want <clears throat> this to be recorded that Bill Goldsborough actually told me that I was right in something I described related to fisheries on Chesapeake Bay. That's That may be a first. Well, I, I'm sure I can find uh, something that's wrong about it, but we have to discuss <laughs> All right, it all right. So the, the, the crabs are now riding bottom currents back into the Chesapeake. Yeah, uh, and, and they continue to develop, and they do go to the next stage, which is the, uh, uh, the first baby crab stage, a tiny thing that looks just like a blue crab, at which point they are mobile. They can swim pretty much wherever they want, and they drop out of the water column. So they're no longer plankton that just gets swept where the currents take them. Um, and that's a critical point, and this will take us back to that predation question. 
Uh, at that point, they need to find cover. They need good habitat, and typically that's the underwater grasses that are at least in a healthy bay or very abundant in that part of the bay, the lower bay. Um, they still are relatively abundant, but they're much less than they used to be. Um, but they hide in the grass beds from predators is what it amounts to. Um, and um, uh, that can be, in a given year, a very important limiting factor if there aren't enough grasses and you have high, a lot of predators around, like we had a few years ago, rockfish, red drum, um, that can really uh, have an impact on the population. So grasses, having enough grasses, having the habitat that they can hide in is critical, and that is the thing that I think is somewhat controllable. And the fact that we currently have grasses at 35-year highs in the Chesapeake, still not nearly what we want to get to, but improved, may be boding well for the blue crab. Yeah, exactly. And we saw the grasses start to bounce back last year. The last year's aerial survey came out this spring, uh, confirmed that. We thought we'd see that from you know, anecdotal observations, uh, and the water was clear, relatively speaking, in the bay last year allowed the sunlight to reach the bottom where the grasses need it, uh, and the grasses responded. It's a really, really clear indication, to use the word, uh, of how resilient the system is, how, how it can respond if you give it half a chance. Um, and, and now the crabs, the crabs did well last year into the fall. They, they appear to have had a good uh, spawning year class last fall. Um, this is all tied together. So uh, what is going to be the price of a bushel of crabs for the 4th of July? Right. Well, that's where um, I think you would probably be right if you guessed high. <laughs> um, the prices are uh, better than they were last year because crabs are more abundant, but 4th of July, of course, is right. when they're peak. Uh, but I don't want to lose the other point about uh, grasses uh, being controllable. I, I, I didn't complete that. The they uh, certainly come and go uh, in ways that we can't control, but the thing that's been limiting uh, underwater grasses for several decades now has been the clarity of the water, uh, as we indicated, uh, from nitrogen and phosphorus pollution, stimulating excess algal growth, blocking the, uh, the light getting through the water to the grasses. And if we're able to control those pollutants, and we think we're seeing some, some results from doing that over many years, boom, you get your grasses back and, and it helps the crabs. Well, this, this is great news, Bill. And we know, again, I just can't stop emphasizing it enough that while progress is being made, we're nowhere near where we should be. And so everyone who cares about the Bay needs to continue to let their elected officials know that saving the Bay, reducing pollution, managing fisheries with good science, et cetera, et cetera, is, is critical. Now, before I let you go, um, Let's talk about another crab just for a second, uh, horseshoe crabs. We mentioned horseshoe crabs in our podcast two weeks ago when I was interviewing Ray Langston, the former mayor of Highland Beach, right next door to the Merrill Center, CBF's headquarters. And he spoke about the spawn of horseshoe crabs on his beach, on their beach, which we certainly saw next door here on our beach. Tell, tell us about horseshoe crabs uh, this year. Um. Well, horseshoe crabs are a really interesting critter. One of our most interesting, certainly one of the oldest that we have. How old? <sighs> Millions of years. Millions, trillions. Millions. I, they go <laughs> literally back to. Well, they they are they, prehistoric. Yeah, times. yeah, absolutely. They they are they are ancient, ancient organisms. Um, uh, 
Meaning that they have not changed, <laughs> have not changed in, significantly. Their in their, in in their, their morphology. Yep. The, yeah, exactly. Uh, and Which is rare for a species not to change. Over that's right. It, it means they've remained well adapted to the circumstances, even as the circumstances have changed. Uh, so that's, that, they're, they're a durable animal. Um, but having said that, their numbers had been way down, uh, and the epicenter for horseshoe crabs, if you will, on the East Coast is actually Delaware Bay, uh, but we get a fair amount of them here in Chesapeake Bay as well. Uh, but it turns out that they actually, even though we don't eat them uh, and, and, and don't see that direct harvest and consumption value, uh, they are valuable for other things. Uh, the, the blood of the horseshoe crab is, um, I believe it's magnesium-based instead of iron-based like ours. It uh, turns a shade of blue when exposed to oxygen. It indicates that. Uh, but it turns out that it, um, it, it, it is, it's an invaluable substance for helping sterilize medical equipment, I believe is the way they use it. Uh, so there actually is an industry, a biomedical industry, that catches horseshoe crabs and bleeds them for their blood for that purpose, and then releases them. Some question about how much survival there is uh, still remains a bit open, I think. Um, but the other thing that we've found value in horseshoe crabs for is as bait, as bait for, for eel pots, for conchs, and for other, other um, uses. Um, and, uh, and between those two things, we actually did find a way to depress the horseshoe crab population. We as a society, as not a necessarily society. the Chesapeake Bay Foundation. <laughs> right. No, we, we don't fish uh, uh, conch pots or do biomedical work. But um, that's right. We, uh, the bigger we, uh, society has found a way to overfish them. Um, and over the last uh, couple of decades, we've been trying to turn that around because they are very important ecologically, uh, and you do see that especially in Delaware Bay, where they, in a real interesting part of their life cycle, they, they come ashore uh, in, in the spring full moon uh, and lay their eggs right on the beach. Uh, and, uh, and it turns out in a couple key places, especially in Delaware Bay, that's critical food for migrating birds. Um, so those birds, some of them like the, the red knot <coughs> uh, listed species, are severely limited by, by that factor. Uh, and so there was uh, quite a bit of um, uh, impetus to try and improve the abundance of horseshoe crabs. And I want to say, uh, thanks to the states working together under a coastwide management plan for horseshoe crabs under the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission, uh, we've made progress on that. And horseshoe crab numbers are looking up. Um, uh, sort of like blue crab, they're looking up, but we, we're not there yet. Uh, and I'd like to think that the um, uh, unusual appearance of them in numbers here on our beach, here uh, at Merrill Center, uh, is an indication of their increased abundance. Well, w we saw uh, not hundreds, but thousands here on the Merrill Center beach. And it was interesting, the Richmond Times-Dispatch, the Richmond newspaper, actually picked up uh, one of our staff, John Rodenhausen's observations uh, and mentioned that in an editorial they wrote about the return of horseshoe crabs. And I should say, Bill, I, I should have said in the beginning, you, you deserve a lot of credit for a lot of these fisheries issues, certainly horseshoe crabs, because you have been for many, many years a member of the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission and one of the few professional conservationists, if not the only professional conservationist, on the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. 
Uh, yeah, I think that's true, uh, at least among the citizen commissioners. You know, there are three types from each state. There's a there's a citizen commissioner, there's a state administrative person, typically the fisheries director, and there's a legislator. Um, any one of those two could also consider themselves professional conservationists uh, of one sort or another. So maybe there's a little shade of gray in there, too. There you go. But it's been a great, uh, a great effort, and the ASMFC has been critical for all sorts of fisheries issues from striped bass to menhaden to, we learn now, horseshoe crabs. So thank you for your service there. So, Bill, anything else uh, on blue crabs or horseshoe crabs? And we'll get to other species at future podcasts. But anything more for today? Um, no, I'm just looking forward to the steam, steam crabs that you're going to treat the staff to this weekend. <laughs> for Will Baker and Bill Goldsboro, this is our continuing podcast series, Turning the Tide, Saving Chesapeake Bay. Be sure to tune in again in two weeks. Thanks very much, Bill. Thank you. Thank you.